Hi there, I'm Tommy Williams, uh, back with Jack Levison this week um, from Perkins School of Theology. Uh, Jack's an Old Testament scholar and teaches there, and we've been really blessed to have him uh, with us for these summer podcasts, Summer Together podcasts. We're looking at the book of Genesis each week. Thanks for, thanks for listening in, um, Jack. So we've been walking our way through all of the, the lectionary readings at least, but trying to give context and background to all of these Genesis passages that we're reading in, in worship uh, throughout our summer here at St. Paul's. Um, so we have, uh, last week, we dropped off with Jacob and Esau and the clash that they have with each other and, and how that represents really this clash of culture and difference between each other. And, and that clash just continues. Um, uh, reaching way back, uh, they, there's this uh, commandment desire not to uh, marry with the Canaanites. And so uh, in the intervening chapters, uh, Esau, in fact, does uh, marry Judith, uh, uh, and so um, there is a striking little verse uh, that uh, by doing that, Esau has made life bitter for his parents, for Rebekah and for Isaac. Um, so we've had all of these, uh, the back and forth uh, um, in these intervening weeks where Esau is uh, sort of clashing with Jacob and now with his parents. Um, and... Uh, and so in his intervening chapters also, we have the wrestle over the birthright. We talked a little bit last week about um, the, uh, the turning on its head of firstborn and birthright and what all of that can mean. And now um, uh, Jacob has essentially, quote, stolen the birthright. Is that the right way to think of it, do you think? Uh, cheated his brother out of it. Cheated his brother. Esau's firstborn. They're twins. Yeah. So by a few minutes at least, Esau was the firstborn. And uh, because of Isaac's um, blindness and frailty, uh, they trick him with Rebecca's involvement uh, that he's tricked into giving the secondborn, Jacob, the birthright. And now the clash continues. Yeah. And Esau is continuing to make life difficult. Jacob's going to be on the run. So. Yeah, and I think with, uh, with the second deception, so that the first time uh, Jacob, when Esau comes in, sells him a bowl of soup for his birthright. Yeah. We can say all sorts of things about poor Esau. I mean, talk about short-sighted. Talk about stupid. I mean, clearly of the twins, he's the one with less brains. Give you my entire birthright. Just give me a bowl of just soup. Give me a bowl of soup. I mean, you know. <laughs> and I'm sure there have been sermons on, you know, giving up what really matters for what doesn't or whatever. But So you're in Dallas. It makes me think about way back. What uh, are you going to yeah. say about Dallas? Well, you know, like the, do you remember, this is way before you were in Dallas, but uh, anybody that's watched sports forever. So the Herschel Walker trade. Yes. Right? Uh, so Herschel Walker. They traded was, him away? Well, he was in their prime. The Dallas Cowboys, he was prime. Why would you give Herschel Walker Right, away. so they trade him away for all of these no-name players and draft picks. And, of course, all of those draft picks and players be composed what would become their Super Bowl oh, championship okay. teams, right? So, the, But anyway, it doesn't work for this comparison. But this trade-off seems yeah. so out of whack, right? It does seem Bowl out of whack. Bowl of soup for birthright. Bowl of soup for birthright. You know, and then in the second real big deception or cheating passage, that's when Isaac's on his back can't see anything, about to die, 
And do you want to tell the story? You told the story short, but you needed to tell it long. Yeah, this yeah. is too good a story. All you right, want to tell all it? Right, all right. So, um, yeah, so Isaac's uh, on his back. Because this is all background to what's going to go on. Yeah. That's right. So Isaac is, is frail and old and blind, and the story makes really clear that he's an infirmed man who yes. can be tricked, right? He's in a position of vulnerability who can be manipulated. And Rebecca, we already know, Rebecca favors Jacob of the two. Rebecca really wants Jacob to receive birthright from Father Isaac. Uh, and so um, uh, Esau is hairy, as we learned about from birth. And uh, so the only way Isaac can identify which son is which is by touch, right? right. So he knows Esau by his hairy arms, hairy skin. And so Rebecca in cahoots with Jacob makes it to where there's skin of hair uh, right on top of Jacob's bare arms, and uh, he comes to Isaac's um, bedside. And in a whole tricky moment um, with Rebecca and Jacob in cahoots, Isaac unwittingly gives over the birthright. Thinking it's Esau, he gives over the birthright to Jacob, the second yes. son. So it's a... So twice over, yeah, Jacob twice is over. treated like the firstborn. That's right. Twice over, even though he's not. With Rebecca's... Um, Initiation. Yeah, we talked about Rebecca, you know, when you first see Rebecca. It, and, and by the way, you know, this all comes from that Art of Biblical Narrative book by Robert Alter and others who wrote this, that the first time you meet anyone in the Bible is the most important time. And very often you'll learn about their character from the very first time. So remember Isaac's servant is praying, and before he's done praying, poof, there's Rebecca. And you see the verb quickly quickly. And what do we find at the end of life? Rebecca is exactly the same character, taking all sorts of initiative, dressing up Jacob in the fur, and then it even says she gave him bread and soup. She handed the savory food and the bread that she had prepared to her son Jacob. Very detailed what she's willing to do, because that's, Re that's Rebecca. You know, um, in anything but my, probably my, my research, I'm willing to let things go. And people who are totally detailed about everything can drive me nuts. It's like, does it matter if okay. the shirt isn't ironed? But Rebecca is clearly one of those people who can attend to a thousand details at once. Right. And she does. And this time she uses it to deceive her own husband, um, which... Again, fills, fulfills the promise while they were still in the womb that the elder will serve the younger. Yeah. So in that respect, she's right. But she's totally wrong, too, because she's uh, deceiving Isaac. That's what's so hard about this story. You have this sense that, that there's this destiny that's playing out here that, that yeah. Rebecca is in some way fulfilling that the elder will serve the younger, that it will, the script will be flipped. Yeah. Uh, but it's done in this very deceitful way. And what do you, how do you make sense of that? that uh, let's just say it again like last week. Yeah. That's life. You know, um, we'll come across that about three podcasts hence when we're dealing with Joseph. His brothers have tried to get rid of him. And what does he say at the very toward the end of the story? You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. You know, this doesn't always work. 
Because, and, and the reality is, Genesis gives us a snapshot of why the overarching element doesn't always work. This, this sense of God's providence doesn't always work. But on the other hand, it can. That things can, can, can work out. I mean, I don't even like to say it. In this horrible family dysfunction, national dysfunction, family dysfunction, cultural dysfunction, all of these dysfunctions, and yet you take this story, which is appalling, that she would deceive her husband by dressing up Jacob to look like Esau. It's appalling. So rather than this sort of providential blueprint, right, that is driving a narrative, we're to really we just read this story as, a true, as, a, as, a, as true about life, right, and that the, the purposes and promises of God um, continue along even through these deceitful, appalling stories, right? That God's, yeah. God's story will be told, God's lineage will continue even in spite of these kinds of yeah. experiences. Man, I made it the best I got right now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's I, hard. I, I, we can do a comparison, though. We're not going to deal with the book of Exodus in these podcasts, except for Exodus 1 and 2. But compare God's, and scholars have dealt a lot with this, compare God's presence in Genesis 12 through 50, these ancestral narratives, and Exodus. In Exodus, God hears the cry of the people, and God gets deeply involved. Conversations with Moses, appearing in the burning bush, the plagues over Egypt, the division, the dividing of the Red Sea or the Sea of Reeds. God is, you can see God's hand. And in fact, when they talk about Exodus, it's God's mighty, powerful hand, God's outstretched arm. You can actually see God's hand reaching into our story. Genesis, not so much. Genesis, God will come in, maybe in the form of an angel, make an announcement, and then leave. Or God will feel bad for Leah, or, or uh, feel bad for Rachel, and open up Rachel's womb. But all of these are ambiguous things. It's not like God had to reach a hand in and pop a cork in Rachel's womb, and she had a baby. Forgive the image. But you read Genesis... And where is God but coming in, reiterating the promise, you'll be a great nation, I will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, all the nations will bless themselves and you, and then leaving. The occasional wrestling with an angel. But it's a very different image of God's interaction with the world from Exodus. In Exodus, it's clear that God's hand is a part of these things. God's doing miracles. God's dividing seas. God's putting frogs in the land. God passes over in the form of the angel. Not so much in Genesis. And what makes Genesis so powerful is we have to figure out where God is in the story. It's not patently obvious. In Exodus, it's pretty obvious where God is. When they're thirsty in the wilderness, Moses hits a rock and they get water. Right. You have the kind of classic miracles in Exodus, but not in Genesis, where you have to say, you meant it for evil, I'm sure God meant it for good. Yeah. But it's not like it was written on two tablets of stone and Joseph knew this. He had to figure this one out. Or like it's, you know, it's in this place where our, where our text will pick up, actually, Jack, it, uh, in, verse, uh, in chapter 28, verse 10, 
Um, you have, um, you're coming out of the story where Esau um, has gotten married, and then uh, Jacob leaves Beersheba and, and goes towards Haran, and you want to maybe talk a little bit about Haran. Um, but he comes to a certain place and stays there for the night, and he actually has a dream and a, what do we call this, a mystical encounter with God? Yeah. Um, and so there, we're looking for God in Genesis. Um, here is an encounter of, of Jacob with, with God. Yeah. Um, this is a tough one. I remember reading this and thinking, how are we going to have a podcast on Jacob's Ladder? I mean, most Christians know the story from We Are Climbing Jacob's Ladder. Right. I always thought that was one of the most boring camp songs imaginable. Especially if you do it in a round. That's right. Higher, higher, and longer, longer and longer. longer. It's like boringer and boringer. Uh, you know, every run goes. I thought, who made this song up? Um, uh, but, but the point is, I wondered, but I did come up with one thing that I thought about. You have this dream of the ladder and the angels climbing up and down. And then in verse 13, the Lord stood beside Jacob and said, this is what I think is important. The latter dream lasts only one verse. We make a lot of it. But he put his head down and lay down in that place. And he dreamed that there was a ladder set up on the earth, the top of it reaching to heaven, and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. That then picks up in verse 16. Then Jacob woke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place. Verses 13, and I'm sorry, I know this is on a podcast, so you don't have the text necessarily in front of you. And if you're driving, don't put the text in front of you, please. Right. Verses 13 to 15 a verse of chapter 28. Of 28 are really an interruption. If you read verse 13, you read verses 12 and 16 and leave out 13 to 15. Look what you got. And Jacob dreamed that there was a ladder set up on the earth, the top of it reaching to heaven, and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Then Jacob woke up from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So really, Jacob's dream of the ladder is verse 12 and verse 16. That's it. Right? Right. But I have a feeling the authors of Genesis, whoever they were, thought that that's a prim, pretty flimsy little dream. And I don't know that they knew what it meant either. So they insert in the middle of verses 12, where he has the dream, and 16, where he wakes up from the dream, 13 to 15, which basically reiterates the promise again that your offspring will be like the dust of the earth and you will go from east to west and the whole world will be blessed by your offspring. It's the promise to his grandfather Abraham. Exactly right. the same promise. So it brings that back and roots this experience of Jacob back in the ancestral lineage. Yes, and I wonder if what's going on, and believe me, this is off the record, but I wonder if what's going on is they had this little miraculous dream of Jacob. But on its own, it doesn't make a lot of sense. 
We don't have a context for no understanding context. Why, why is this important. Yeah, yeah it's kind of a, a, a dream for dream's sake. And Jacob's reaction is a strong one. This is the gate of heaven. But when you put the promise to Abraham and Isaac, which has been reiterated to his grandfather, his father, and now to Jacob, in the middle of it, then it makes sense that the heavens open going up and down, and the promise is your family will be fruitful and multiply and spread out. It's at the gate of heaven where the promise is reiterated to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and be a blessing to the nations. And it, there's no miracle for miracle's sake in Genesis. That's what I love about it. There's no dream for dream's sake. There's no vision for vision's sake. They are tied to the survival of the people and becoming a blessing to the world. And this is a really important part of this promise. You will be, the earth shall be blessed in you and your offspring. The sign of a great nation is not whether the nation is great, but whether the earth is blessed by that nation. And the people who are outside the nation can tell us whether we're a great nation. It's not not for us to judge. It's whether the rest of the earth says, you are a blessing to us. I think you're preaching now, Jack. I'm sort of preaching. Bring it on. But I think it's a biblical sermon. Yeah, it sounds. I think yeah. it's a biblical sermon, but I am preaching. Well rooted, yes. well rooted in the text. Yeah, hopefully, good preaching is rooted there, and you've done that. So. I think that's right. That the reflection is uh, is uh, what is the what is the rest of the yeah. That's true. Other people are what can testify to what is true. Oftentimes, right? I think so. Yeah. In fact, really, scholars have done a ton of work on these promises throughout Genesis, and they've tried to track the various forms in with in which this promise occurs and it actually occurs in various different forms throughout Genesis but one of the great forms is it's, it's called the Hithpael I think in Hebrew the nations will be blessed or bless themselves in you and imagine that image the nations will bless themselves by your nation what a grand image of what it means to be a blessing to the world and you could say this of the church um, is the church such a place that the people who don't go here, who don't come here, who aren't a part of here, say, we bless ourselves by you. Mm. That's the real challenge for the church, is not whether we think we're friendly or hospitable or servicing our world, whether the world would say of us, yeah. we are, we're being blessed in you. We're glad you're here, yeah. even though we're not in you. Isn't that something? We often talk about testimonies inside the church that, that give witness to... How we're doing, right? How's the how's the faithfulness of the people in the community? But what 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 do what would the others say? What would yeah. folks out in our neighborhood community world say about the church and whether it's a blessing, yeah, or not? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, to wrap up this particular podcast, I wonder if we want to say anything more about place and, and geography in this story about Jacob saying, "Wow, this place, the Lord was in this place." And he, he wraps here towards the end of chapter 28 by rising in the morning and, and um, setting up in that place, or at least identifying that place as Bethel, um, as this place where he experiences God. So you want to wrap up by saying anything, what's the significance of place and geography in an experience with God like this? Oh, and you're giving me like 30 seconds? Yeah, yeah, no, you've got a little while. You're keeping the time here. Yeah, Yeah, I actually think the power of this story is that place isn't 
established place. Place is transitional place. So look at 28.10. Let me see if I can unpack that, Tommy. Jacob left Beersheba. And why was he in Beersheba? Because it had a well. <laughs> Another well. There was water in Beersheba. And he left the Beersheba well. And he went toward Haran. And Haran is where Abraham was from. So if you go all the way back, you're in chapter 28. If you go all the way back to chapter 12 of Genesis, Abraham and Sarah and Lot left Haran far to the east. And there are other stories in here. They go east. Yeah. So Jacob is, is trying to go home. He wants to go to his father's home. He wants place. He wants the white picket fence. But where does he have his vision? Not where there is a white picket fence. Not where there are two and a half bathrooms. Not in a familiar spot. Where Jacob has his vision is in a place called a certain place in verse 11. He came to a certain place and he stayed there for the night. Why? Because it was pretty? No. Because he had friends there? No. Because he knew it already? No. He stayed there, it goes on to say, because the sun had set. He had no choice. And we need to be prepared to find God on the road, on the journey, while we are traveling places. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward his home, his grandfather's home, Haran. He came to a certain place, stayed there for the night only because the sun had set there. He took one of the stones of the place. It didn't even have good sleeping area. He took a stone, he put it under he his head. He took a rock for he his pillow. He took a rock for his pillow and he lay down in that place and he dreamt. So I think the power of this is where do we encounter God? When we are on the move, when we are traveling, when we are en route. I think it's a mistake to think if we're established, when we have that job and that house and that townhouse or that apartment and that church and those kids and that community, then God will speak to us. On the contrary in Genesis, God is always coming en route. So my word about place, forget about it. All right. Challenging words, so especially if you're on the Galveston beach right now. Uh, you're traveling. Uh, look for encounters with God, right? I'm assuming this podcast is God speaking directly to you in your car or on your vacation or wherever you're going. All right. So well, you better remember that. Yeah, we pray, <laughs> we pray so, right? We pray we so. We do pray so. Thanks, Jack.